My name is Sol and I'm an alcoholic. This is an opening of the Atlantic Group of Alcoholics Anonymous and all are welcome to attend. Please, we hope that what you learn here may be helpful to your recovery and, our, and or understanding. The format of this meeting is two 10 minute speakers followed by our information break. And then our main speaker who will speak for 30 minutes. Our first 10 minute speaker is Seal. But with the drinks, she was a 
warm and wonderful mother. I had my parents raised waiting for them when they got home. My father had a triple scotch on the rocks. My mother had a triple black martini extra dry on the rocks, lemon twist, which was a piece of knowledge that a 10-year-old probably shouldn't have. But um, it was, to me, when I was young, the gatherings we'd have with my family were terrific, wonderful affairs. It was alcohol that lubricated it. I didn't think of how dangerous it was for them to be driving home with us in the car. Nobody thinks that's all bad. It was the Mad Men 60s. Um, I, um, so, so I saw my parents as being vivacious and happy and lively when they were drunk. I'm um, a lot older than my sister. I wasn't there for my parents' bed wedding and wandering, nocturnal wanderings around. I wasn't there for when alcohol um, being a progressive disease, it was getting worse for them. Um, I saw a lot of it later myself. My parents were, function, were functioning alcoholics, but um, they were saved by uh, getting cancer and chemotherapy and having to stop. They were sort of their progression was forced, and in my life that happened when I was pregnant. I had to give up drinking. I would have that would have sort of shortened my drinking lifetime. But it wasn't, you know. I mean, in some ways, it wasn't forced on me. My first drunk was actually I had too many glasses of wine, and which was loud, and I was watching cabaret on TV, and I must have been nine or ten, and it was creepy. I was scared. I didn't have some more later. So it took me a long time to drink like that. I went, I had my regular binge parties in high school. And then again, the kids were great. They were a lot of fun when they were drunk. Alcohol made parties fun. In college, I went to a prestigious Seven Sisters school and it was easy to be the partier. And I was known as a partier. It was easy to be that and it was a lot of fun. I um, saw Alcohol is being a lot of fun, and just as um, my father was a precarious person who was sort of the life of the party, um, I kind of became that person. So the people would be drunk around me who wouldn't be drunk that way in their everyday lives. So I and my coterie of friends were the people you went to to get drunk with. And pretty much my coterie of friends are themselves all alcoholics, and most are in recovery or um, continually trying. So, um, yes. so I was, um, how much time do I have left here? Three minutes. I was uh, a happy, progressive alcoholic, and I was getting worse and worse. Um, I didn't uh, really uh, throw up or black out. I have because nobody's serious drinker as I am who hasn't uh, done those things. But making my amends was uh, an easy thing to do because I remembered every horrible. And not throwing up made my hangovers horrible. And so of course I, um, of course I, uh, uh, I have terrific hangovers, and I would say, okay, never again. That would be my never again moments. 
but I didn't. Um, increasingly, I was arrested for drunk driving. That was a never again moment. But for the most part, I thought I would just be a buffalo alcoholic like my parents until I started to lose more and more things. And in a sort of perfect um, storm of deaths, my husband, my parents, my father-in-law's, my father-in-law's wife, um, his mother, everybody sort of died, and I was catapulted into this um, uh, the description that I've given you already. Uh, in this time, I finally decided that I had to um, do something about it. I planned my detox, I planned uh, my rehab, and I went through those, and it was a tremendous amount. It was so hard. It was so, so, so hard not, um, uh, not drinking. Uh, but I did do it the first time. I started going to AA meetings because I couldn't go to rehab anymore. I liked my rehab. But um, uh, I didn't really uh, become involved in AA until um, I became manic for a year, absolutely crazy. And um, I went to regular AA meetings for years, just having some, somebody to talk to to identify with another alcoholic. But it wasn't until I got to here, to the Atlantic Group, that I really went through the steps and uh, found a God who could help me not just be that dry alcoholic, but who could help me transcend that. And that's what um, took me so long to get to where I am. And that's why I'm so grateful to have Hoffman Anonymous, and particularly to this group. Thank you. Right, right now I'm going to the steps, the steps, 
as marcas da mais a pena da conexão de prata da minha because I was really spiritual in that, like I think that that was my biggest problem. I didn't believe in anything bigger than myself. Like I, or maybe I did believe, but I wasn't actually able to accept the fact that I was actually miserable at some point. Like um, before I joined the rooms of AA, I, I think I have uh, everything I, I was actually dreaming for, or everything that everyone could actually dream for. So um, my, my story is actually way back. Uh, when I was about 15, 15 years old, I was growing in a very safe space. I was growing in a home where I, I felt like mom and my stepdad felt this kind of like safe space for me to be where I wanted. But I was so scared to get out of that space because I knew society somehow were accepting me where I was like 100%. So I always tried to hide myself in that room, you know? And that stage become, and even that safe space alcohol found me. You know, I think that my, my, my family was in a space where they could actually have alcohol at home anytime they wanted. So it was maybe because my stepdad was a, like a principal in the high school that I went to. So every single time it was meetings, people, professors, like adults. I was super scared of teenagers, even if I was one. I was obviously more, much more comfortable with adults around me, just because I felt like teenagers were me all the time. Super big perspective. Like, I'm like, I'm not like this at all. Like, I, and maybe that's why somehow like, I, I, I thought I was different. Like, maybe that's why I, I, I found me out of all the things that, that power of like, you know, like dreaming like a man, or like my professors and my stepdad was doing. So I think that that was one of the first relationships I built with Adam like that power, you know, like society made alcohol so fun, you know, like even boys and drinks drink, drink different things, like wines, like the glasses are so beautiful and like the design, even the design is like, oh, that's cool. So for me, it was actually pretty fun to have like a glass of whiskey and drinking like a Latin man, like, like David. So, well, it didn't work out pretty good to me that, but I ended up finishing high school, great grades, Nothing went wrong. I think I was a pretty good teenager. I think that I, I just used alcohol on weekends. And the funny thing was, I was always isolated. And alcohol was always around when I was there. So it was alcohol, me, and maybe two or three people who actually happened to work at home. So I didn't have that kind of friendship. Because I, I think I believe that since my teenage years, I was always using uh, lies to actually cover myself. I think that I was never even able to be open or honest with myself. I was always trying to just lie. Like even if someone asked me how was I was doing, I was like, I'm excellent. Why do you care, you know? Like like that was my problem. Like that was what I was actually doing. But that isolation began like back to the 15 years old. And then it took me to the place where I was actually desiring to be alone. Like I moved out of home when I was 18 years old, I moved to London, and in there was when I really find out. I, I think that, that was the first time that I actually started growing, which really becomes one of my favorite things to Monday to Friday. Like, there was nothing else for me to do, just try to learn English and drink everything. That was my only life for like two years in a row. And then alcohol becomes, you know, like that kind of window that alcohol opened to drugs or whatever you have to mention right now. It's just like everything you can imagine was there. And 
I'm the super saying saying is you're saying what a non guy I have gone, I have gone, or I'm thinking about it. So that's also something that the program has to be, you know, like the mental piece and all that. Um yes, sharing my story, hoping that someone can relate to it. And actually I appreciate the fact that in these rooms is how we actually do get sober. Um, so that was my first geography. After that I went back home. With this kind of idea, Colombia is a really dangerous place if you're an alcoholic or drug addict because you can get anything you want, basically. For a very low price. So, not really good for me. So, I went back to college. I was in my architecture program. And after two years of doing that, I was so, so addicted to drugs and alcohol that I literally stopped going to school. Like, I woke up every single Monday with 20 assignments behind and just show up to school being like, oh, I didn't make it, so whatever, even after two years. So it was so horrible that I ended up losing everything and I made my academic program that I was so scared, so ashamed to actually tell that to mom that the first thing I did was just find a flight to New York and be like, oh, I'm moving to New York. Like, it's gonna be one year and then coming back, I'm gonna, you know, prioritize my English working on. <laughs> 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 this is a lot actually. But, um, well, but anyway, so I moved to New York and here was where I actually really arrived into drugs and into everything I desired before. Like I got into most, I, I, I think it was one of the most beautiful relationships I had until the moment. I got married, uh, we were together for five years and then things didn't work out and you know, like two alcoholics living together, I can't imagine that, you know, how it looks like. It's like literally two trash, trash powder children together. So it was kind of messy, but I think that I also learned a lot from it, and the best that I could take out of that thing is just, we cannot carry anyone into the homes of alcoholic animals, we just only can carry them as fish. And, and this is what I'm doing today, you know, like I, Right now I have a sponsor, I have friends, I have people that I actually consider part of my family, which is maybe weird for many of us, especially if we are new, like, when, when the first time when I was in the homes, I was like, why are they being so nice to me? Like, what's the reason why they're nice? Why is the reason why they're being nice? And then I just realized that people are just nice because they want to be nice. And that's the best part of it. Um, yeah, so I'm very, very happy to be here today. Like, this is, this is just super weird. Literally a year ago I was miserable. I I was just going through my divorce. I was drinking, smoking, using drugs every single day, like every single day. I was trying to accomplish sobriety because every single new year I was making new resolutions. I was like, okay, this year is gonna happen. I'm gonna stop smoking, I'm gonna stop drinking, I'm gonna save money and go and eat Europe or whatever. I'm gonna just disappear from the world because that's my solution. Move somewhere else, like start from zero. But um, Working the steps actually give me the power to take my own decisions rather than allowing alcohol or drugs to do it for me. So right now I have the courage to actually face things the way they are and accepting how they are. Like it's not only, it's not only, uh, not everything's gonna be like rose and like being rose how we supposed to be sobriety, you know, like it's going to be ups and downs. But we have each other, like that's one of the things that I learned, like, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to be like, wait, I don't feel well today. And, you know, like, you knew you used to say, like, there is no one safe place in here.
of the Atlantic Group since 1998, and I want to tell you that I'm not up here voluntarily. I'm up here by decree. Uh, with the election of Matt to the steering committee, I became the 13th member of the uh, steering committee, and by group conscience, we'll only have 12 members of the formal steering committee. So I was bumped up, bumped down, depending on how you look at it, to the next level of steering committee, and group conscience is when someone goes to the next level, uh, they're the first speaker of the term. So, that's me. <laughs> That's why I'm up here. Mandated. <laughs> no choice. But it does, you know, it does, uh, I recollect the uh, first time I actually spoke 30 minutes at the Atlantic Group. I believe it was in 2002. I had 11 years at the time. And the overall, of, uh, the overall chair of the group at the time came to me in like February or something. And he said to me, you know, you have over 10 years and you have the sober requirement to be a third minute speaker. I would love to have you share. And I said, that's great. And he booked me for a date in April to speak for 30 minutes. And, uh, you know, and March, April started coming, and my date was getting closer. And I went around to all groups in AA and told everybody <laughs> that I knew that I was going to be a 30 minute speaker at the Atlanta. Because it really is a privilege to be the main speaker. And I told everybody. And the weekend before I was slotted to speak on that Tuesday, that uh, chairperson, who I still have a resentment against, <laughs> called me up and he said, there's a guy from the Pacific Group in California, and he's coming to New York tomorrow on Sunday, and he's going to be in the city till Thursday, and I'm going to have him speak in your place. <laughs> and I said, no, you're not. <laughs> He said, well, I know this guy is a really good speaker, and he's going to speak Tuesday. I'll set you up in another spot. And I said, no, you're not. <laughs> and then he said, I am. That's the way it is. I call the shots. And I said, when are you going to have me uh, speak then? He says, well, I got an open date in August. <laughs> and I said, that's the summer. Everybody's on vacation. <laughs> Speaking to anyway, I wound up speaking in August. And of course, it was up in the sanctuary at that time. There were about three, 350 people. And I remember sitting in the front before the meeting, people came over to me. And they said, you know, first time speaking, how do you feel? And I said, I feel great. They said, yeah? You're not nervous? Nope. You want to say a prayer on the side? Uh, nope. I got it. I'll say a little prayer to myself. You know. <laughs> sure you're not nervous? I said, I'm cool as a human. Meeting started, proceeded, 10 minute speaker, 10 minute speaker. Now, main speaker tonight is Ron. Well, I gotta tell you, my legs turned to rubber. <laughs> I got up here, my mind was like, a, like a, a, a blackboard in a school, just blank. I didn't even know my name, seriously. I couldn't get it out, you know? And I started sweating. <laughs> I mean, profusely to where it was running down the cheeks on my face to sweat. And I put my head down and I said, let me start all over. And I said a little prayer real quick. And I picked my head up and I went the best I could with my qualification. And then after the meeting, when they were doing that procession, you know, 
everybody comes in, you know, that big uh, line we have. Everybody said, Ron, I never realized she was so emotional. We were up there crying <laughs> because you were the main speaker when the truth is I was scared pitless, you know? And uh, so that was the first time I spoke. I'm not sweating profusely tonight, um, but it is a privilege to be up here, you know? And, uh, you know, I want to say, I want to, I want to say that you know, I'm not going to give you my statistics. I have a number of years in AA. I'm, you know, an official Alcoholics Anonymous old time. It was 25 years. I'm past that. That makes me old. You know, I've been coming to AA uh, before a lot of you were born. I was coming to Alcoholics Anonymous before Atlantic Group was born and formed. And this great group uh, existed. So it's been a while. And like I said, you know, I live on 73rd Street. I actually walked here tonight. And I'm tired. I'm old. Can I sit down and do this? <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. How much time do I have? Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> so, you know, I, all, I, I think all of us human beings, all of us people, innately are spiritual. You know? Uh, I think we're always searching and seeking for some type of spirituality. You know, I always found it kind of strange that we call alcohol spirits. You know? And uh, my first spiritual journey took place when I was 15 years of age. On a Friday autumnal autumn, autumnal October, that's a word, right, Karen? Autumnal? Thank you. Autumnal Friday October evening when I found myself standing in an alley two friends from school behind the liquor store in this Queens neighborhood where I lived. And one of those friends from school came out of that liquor store with a cord, a cord for the metric system. A cord, a Southern proof, Southern comfort, 100 proof. And I, in those days they had that tax stamp on it. I know there were two or three people there who remember that. The tax stamp on the bottom. I remember that twist that he did in that tax stamp ribbon, you know? And then I remember him chugging it down, passing it to the other guy there, chugging it down, and then passing it to me. And that was the first time I drank for it. And that was the first time I found spirituality. Because that drink, that sudden comfort, being in that alley on that evening was what I needed. I'm not going to say the sky's open. I'm not going to say, you know, marching bands were playing in my head or anything like that. But that night changed my life, literally, to this day. To this day, if you think about it. That was my first spiritual journey. You know? And I drank through high school, and then I experimented with a lot of stuff. And, um, you know, I was a tall, gangly uh, kid, awkward to some degree, you know. I wasn't a jock. I wasn't the coolest. What do I am now? But that's <laughs> takes a long time. <laughs> wasn't the best looking guy in school, you know. But I can hold my arm, and I love to party. And I am a happy drunk. I am a. I am the guy with the bland shit. <laughs> I want to drink and have a good time. I don't want to get depressed. I don't want to get drunk. I don't want to sit in my room and do it. 
I want to go out and, and boost it everything. And it was spiritual. It took me out of myself, which is what spirituality does. And I went through high school, but I couldn't wait to get the hell out of Queens. I mean, you know, if you think about it, Queens, New York is really a melting pot of the world. You know, it's a great borough. It really is. The diversity is unbelievable. But I'm a city guy. And how dare my parents raise me in Queens, New York. <laughs> I belong in Manhattan, you know, the epicenter of the universe. There's no other, there's no other place like Manhattan in the universe. And this is where I belong. That's what I think about myself. So I couldn't wait to get on the other side of the bridge, you know. And the minute I got out of high school, I had a choice. I could go that way to college. Or I could go this way to the streets. What I call school of hard knocks. Which way did I choose? The bars, the clubs. Back then, the discos. <laughs> the saloons. That's what I chose. You know? And I hit the streets and I hit them hard and I had a good time and I still had control and I still got what I needed to get. You know? Like, I mean, it was getting, you know, a little more drinking, more days, more nights, not feeling as well, being broke all the time. My first apartment I, re I got, I believe it was 1970, January of 1976. It was on 47th between Lexington and 3rd Avenue. It was a studio apartment, 19 by 15. It was on the second floor of a four-story wall. The rent was $250 a month. The building only had one gas heater one electric meter, so gas and electric was included in $250. And I was behind every single <laughs> month. I had an uncle along the liquor store. You know, he gave me a job because I was at work. And really, But he gave me a job, I was around 19. I went to work for me at a store downtown. You know, and I mean, think about it. A guy like me, all those bottles, Listening at me every day, you know, and uh, he had a rule: if you get if you get caught drinking in his store, you're fired. You know, so did I drink in his store? I don't get fired. Of course I did. <laughs> you know, they have those little minis. I go in the bathroom, flush the toilet a few times, knock them down. And you know. anyway, so I worked for him, and then you know, I was still hitting the streets, having a good time, hitting the bars at night, still had control. You know, I've told this story a few times. I guess I was in my early 20s, 21, 22, whatever it was, and um, broke behind in the rent, uh, not showing up at my uncle's store, um, and not feeling I mean, just sick all the time. And the hangovers were getting a little, you know, worse, a little bit worse. And I said to myself, I need to stop drinking. You know, I need to go home after work. I need to watch TV, eat right, and take it easy. And I did. 30 days, think about it, a whole month. Went to work, got on the subway after work, came back uptown, passed all the bars on Lexington Avenue when I got out of Grand Central, went straight home, turned TV on, popped in a, a Swanson TV dinner maybe or something, <laughs> watched TV, fell asleep, did it the next day, did it for 30 days, 30 days. And then of course, what I do after that month, rewarded myself because I deserve and when I went on a three-day bender, you know, because that's what we do. 
And some time went by, and now I'm in my late 20s. And uh, same thing's happening. I'm sick, and I'm feeling well, I'm broke, I'm behind the I'm still living in that studio apartment. You know, and there's seven, eight years And um, I gotta stop at 30 days. But what I remember was going to work one morning, coming back by the subway, walking home, and I was in that studio apartment, 19 by 15, walking, pacing back and forth, from wall to wall to wall to wall. All for just two days in my I had no more control. I had lost all control. That spiritual journey that I started in that alley with those guys was over. This was not a high power anymore. It was, as Joe Wilson says, my master. I had no choice. Two days. That's all I could stop. And of course, I went out the next day. I went on another three days. Anyway, um, in the meantime, I owned an after hour joint that I had with a couple of guys for a couple of years downtown on 12th Street. People, if you don't know what an after hour joint is, it's when the bars close at 4 o'clock in New York. We open up at 4.30. We don't have a liquor license. It's all illegal. You know? But it was great fun. Great fun. I really enjoyed it. But my drinking got progressively worse and worse and worse. Along the way, I met a young lady. She might, you might consider her my second spiritual journey. We had a deep connection. We both drank and drugged the same way. <laughs> and we had an on again, off again relationship for 20 years. She was my, my everything, of course, when it came to drinking. You know, she was my partner in what I call my partner in crime. And that's what we did in grinding. We lived in a studio apartment together. And uh, she worked, I worked, and we spent all our money on booze and other things. And uh, sometime went on like this, and we would just, and you know, I would say that she was, she was an alcoholic. She was a drug addict. She was a liar. She was a thief. And I can stand here and tell you all those things she was, because I was right there with her. Lying, sailing, cheating, drinking, and drugging along with her. So when she was, she was just a reflection in the mirror. That's all she was. You know? And we went on like this for a number of years. And then we actually, I had a son along the way with another woman, and uh, he was now. It was about four or five years of age. We used to see him on the weekend. We used to get high in the apartment and drunk in the apartment when he would come over. You know, I'm not very proud of that. Uh, he's now 35. And uh, he's a good kid. Although he's a young man. And anyway, so she, you know, I, I was running, managing. Kind of like a managing owner of a liquor store uptown here on 86, 87th Street. The store is still there. I have nothing to do with it. It's mostly a wine shop now. But I was there for about 13 years I worked there. Um, before that, I worked in bars. You know, I worked in clubs. I worked with Ever Boosters. Those were my jobs. You know, that was it. You know, and I stole in every place I ever worked. Even as a part, as an owner, 
manager of, I sold an edifice. And I've kind of seen on my own money, if you think about it. So anyway, I'm working in the store. She, gets, she got a pretty good job uh, working in retail as well. And we decided the kid is coming over. We live in the studio at home. We got to get out of here. So we're kind of calling on, like I said, 73rd on the other side. And uh, we moved in there. And it was much larger than the studio. My son had his own room when he came on the weekends. And uh, I'm still there. 31 years later, still in there. You know, if you get old like me, and you live in New York City, you have a stabilized apartment. <laughs> and you don't go nowhere. <laughs> so 31 years later, I'm still there. But what happened was, uh, we were going out every night, getting drunk, and uh, the bars were close to 4, last call, 4.30, we would leave the bars, they always, you know, you always get one of those uh, to-go cups, and the bartender would fill it up, and we'd be walking across First Avenue with these cups. We always invited people to the apartment, after the boss closed, because I was in the liquor business, I had in this new apartment, literally had a friend who was a carpenter, and he built me a, a three-seat custom-made bar. You know, and I had a little neon sign that said, Ron's Place. <laughs> I was very proud of myself. <laughs> and I had the berries with the Hennessy and the Remy, and I had the decanters, because I was in business. So we always invited people over. And this went on for a couple of years. And then one night, we just went out to the bar, we invited some people over, you know, and they hung out to like 637. Um, it wasn't a night where the police were called, it wasn't a night where knives and utensils and forks were thrown, the plates were broken, uh, nobody pushed anybody. You know, just a just a normal alcoholic drinking night. And uh, this young lady who I was living with, uh, she decided that she's had enough, I guess around five o'clock. So she went into the bedroom, and then around 6.30, I, got, I, I think I ran out of booze, so I took them all out, and I passed out. And we both woke up the next day, I think it was a Saturday, around two, three o'clock in the afternoon, because that was our schedule. And she looked me right in the eye and she said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And she said, there is an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting on 79th Street and First Avenue or something called St. Monica's Church. It's a group called 79th Street Workshop that somebody had told her about. But she had been in a rehab a couple of years earlier. So she knew about AA meetings, which I had no idea about. And didn't want to know about. And didn't care about. I just wanted to drink the way I wanted to drink and keep partying the way I wanted to party. She said she had enough and she was going to a meeting that night at 10 o'clock and she asked me if I would be so kind and oblige her and go to that meeting with her. To which I looked her right back straight in the eye and said, hell no. <laughs> but I think it's not a bad idea you go. Your drinking is very embarrassing. <laughs> Two weeks ago, I got into a fight with a guy you were flirting with. So, you know, go there, do whatever they do there, and then come back and drink like a lady, like you used to. So we can have fun again. Anyway, she went. I didn't. 
And what happened was she was going to meetings every night at 10 o'clock. She got a sponsor. She was counting days. I was now, I didn't have my, my partner, my drinking partner. So I'm now drinking, there's no more clubs, no more bars. I'm drinking in the apartment. We go to our respective jobs, we come home, we have dinner, she gets ready, she puts her makeup on, whatever. She goes to the 10 o'clock meeting. I go into the freezer. I pull out my bottle of vodka. And think about this. I'm working in a liquor store, right? I own, like a partner, so to speak, in a liquor store. And I'm drinking in Jawson. Drinking it right out of the freezer. And I'm drinking it without a glass, without any ice, without any mixer. I'm in the, and I'm laying in the bedroom on the bed with a remote, the ashtray, and a pack of cigarettes. And, and this is my night after night after night. And she's going to meetings. And things are changing. Surprisingly, her eyes are a little bit more alert. Her hair is. She's standing erect, and I'm becoming a wreck. Slowly becoming a wreck. That happy-go-lucky drunk is no more happy. You know, I am mad. I'm just mad at the world. Mad at AA. They took her from me. You know, all my friends are gone. You know, the liquor store is losing money, and I'm just mad. You know, and I'm drinking around the clock. I'm not even going to work. And I'm passing out with a bottle on the floor, and I'm on the floor next to the bottle. I'm waking up, and I'm starting to drink again. And this went on for over a week. And she had enough. She's almost a year sober by then. And she had enough. And she gave me what I call the ultimate, ultimate, either I go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, or she's leaving. She had a sister who live in Bayonne, New Jersey. And anybody who's willing <laughs> to go and live in Bayonne, New Jersey, you know this damn serious about this. So I went to my first Night, Saturday night, she did a workshop, 10 p.m. meeting. She was very smart. She said, I'm going to do different meetings. You're on your own. So I walked into the workshop. Atlantic Group didn't even exist yet. It was three more years until the Atlantic Group would become an alcoholic And I would sit in the back. I would come in. The meeting would start at 10. I would come in at a minute to 10. And I would sit in the back with my head against the wall. And I had that face on. You know that face? Don't mess with don't mess, don't come near me, face. Don't mess with me. Don't talk to me, face. You people are nuts. You people belong here. And I'm only here because of her. And I did that for 33 days. Never raised my hand, never said my name, never identified myself as an alcoholic for 50 days. 33 days. But one night I was in there with that don't mess with me face, sitting in the back with my head against the uh, back, back wall. And somebody from that podium in front said something, and I went, oh, my God. Yes, I understand. And then somebody else shared something, and I said, oh, that happened to me. And somebody else, and I said, I used to do that just like that. Just like that. So first, my ears opened up. 
what your people will tell you. Then my mind opened up to what your people were saying and how you were living. And then my heart opened up. My heart opened up to alcoholics. My heart opened up to you people that were in the rooms that were staying sober one day at a time. And then just wanted to see me get sober and stay sober. So I went and I got a sponsor. And I remember going to him, and I said to him, his name was Eddie, Eddie O. I said, Eddie, you know, this alcoholic thing, I understand that. I'm not here for her. I'm here for me. I do have it. I need to be here. But this God thing, never going to happen. <laughs> and without blinking an eye, he said to me, group of drunks, use the people in the rooms to be your higher power for now. And I did six months, and it kept me sober. You all kept me sober for six months. But you know what? <laughs> you people failed me <laughs> after six months. And I needed to find a higher power of my understanding. That wasn't human. That was innate inside of me, or external, outside. You know, we're all stardust. Stars blow up. And every element in the universe is every compound, element, whatever it is, is inside of all of us. We are all stardust, you know? And that became my next spiritual journey. The higher power of my understanding. And I hope and I pray that it's my last spiritual journey. And the higher power and God that I believe in and have faith in today it's not the same God that I believed in my first year. It's not the same God that I believed in my fifth year or my tenth year. It keeps evolving. And it keeps me wrapped up and warm and sober and part of a community of alcoholics and We are all blessed to be members of alcoholics and We have a special community that most people in the world don't have. We have identification with each other. We are here to help each other, and only to help each other, really. We know there's a lot of, I always said AA is about two things, getting sober and networking. <laughs> so it's all right to network in the program. It's all right to network in the groups, but basically what we're here to do is help the next sick and suffering alcoholic steps over that threshold of the doors of alcoholics and alcoholics. And that's a spiritual journey. And so I'm here under duress tonight <laughs> because I'm being bombed somewhere. And uh, with that note, you know, I just want to say uh, how founder Peggy B. She always used to say, uh, if you want to get a lot of time in Alcoholics Anonymous, there's two things uh, you got to do. She said, don't drink and don't die. <laughs> now, I haven't had a drink. Some people might say I died a long time ago, but I'm still standing. <laughs> so with that, you know, it's really good to be here. I mean, the rest, why not? You know, try and carry the message. You know, like the message was carried. Thank you.
let's thank tonight's speakers, Seal, Pedro, and Ron.